Hey everybody, I am here with Simon, who recently posted a project that I got very excited about. It was uh, an open source video converter called Brovacon Broadcast Video Converter, I'm assuming is what it means. And I just, I, I love stuff like this and I really wanted to talk to you about it and basically just start picking your brain about it before I even ran it once myself because this was pretty exciting. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, of course. <coughs> so there is a long delay because we are on opposite sides of the planet and uh, I'm still coughing. So please excuse any any pauses in this, uh, both you and anybody listening. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, could you just kind of give us an overview of what this is? And it, am I pronouncing it right? Brovacon? Uh, I've never actually thought about it. I've said Brovacon, but it doesn't really matter, I guess. Well, um, Brovacon from now on then. Brovacon sounds like uh, sounds like I'm gonna. No, I, I, never mind. I was about to say something mean, but <laughs> uh, so yeah. I mean, could you just kind of give us an overview of what this is and how how you got around or how you got started doing something like this? So I guess the idea stretches back about four years because on YouTube there are these major record companies that continuously pump out what they call remastered music videos, which are basically just, they take an incredibly low quality source from the web, usually the old YouTube upload, then run it through Topaz AI upscaler and call it remastered. And no, that just doesn't sit right with me because surely these record companies have access to the original analog masters somewhere in their archives. And with access to those masters, if you process it appropriately, you can have some really good quality output as long as you understand about the basics of interlaced video and how, if, it, for example, when it's displayed on a CRT screen, you are essentially getting, in NTSC regions, 60 new images per second, whereas... Uh, the original uploads to YouTube were uh, 30 FPS because, well, they just uploaded the, I assume from the very beginning, they might have uploaded the masters, but YouTube, of course, processes that. And when it does a uh, its own deinterlacing process in their conversion pipeline, if it's below, I think, 720p, it does not support high frame rate output. So mm. you have to upscale it to 720p or 1080p in order for YouTube to display it at the double frame rate, I guess. And correct me if I'm wrong, but on, on top of that, YouTube has recompressed a lot of older videos quite a few times over the years. And I do remember a couple of just fun silly ones that i've you know every once in a while would go back to to show new friends or something and the audio and video would now be off sync even though it was perfect for years <clears throat> so there is definitely proof that at least at one time maybe not anymore youtube had damaged a lot of the videos that were already on their platform in more ways than just audio desync so if some of these older videos that were up were literally ripped from youtube using like 4k video downloader put through Topaz AI and re-uploaded, 
more damage than just the original compression could have been done to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And also because in the meantime, YouTube has introduced a few new codecs. Uh, VP9 and AV1 were introduced relatively recently. And I would assume, or at least I would hope, that their processing pipeline would take the original uploaded file and then recompress it to those new formats. But I'm not actually sure if that is happening. Do they keep the original uploaded file? They do. Uh, if you request a like a data download, you will get the original files. So if you request yeah. all your uploaded data, it takes about a month, but you do get the original file, presumably stored in S3 Glacier or some kind of long-term storage. That is uh, embarrassing because there was a few times I rendered my videos to uh, DXNHR or or just uh, ProRes and just uploaded the giant 100 gigabyte file to see what would happen. And uh, YouTube, it was actually better when I compressed it first and sent it up. So I must have a couple of uh, 100 plus gigabyte files up there, or 90 something gigabyte files just sitting up in their servers, taking up space. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. When I uploaded the test music videos to show an example of the output of the program, I did upload the ProRes version because I assumed that if it had the higher quality version, it would produce higher quality output. But that doesn't actually seem to be true, as you stated. Yeah. Yeah. I originally started this when we were proving out that if you have a lot of followers, you get less compression than somebody with basically no followers because I was uploading a video and it was of Sonic the Hedgehog. The first one were lots of solid blue sky in the background and YouTube was compressing the heck out of that. <clears throat> and a friend of mine had uh, you know, infinitely more followers than me uploaded the same clip to one of their videos and it looked fine. So I asked, hey, what did you do? And I, he taught me how to do my workflow to get the best quality out of it. So he said the usual, same thing I told you to do. So we kind of figured from there on that, you know, YouTube does compress things differently. So it's uh, kind of interesting to think about that. Yeah, that, that matches what I, ha uh, what I experienced as well, because I have the, my additional music video channel with like 30 odd subscribers and then my main channel with 7,000 plus when I upload something to that channel, YouTube processes it within about five minutes. When I upload to the secondary channel, YouTube can take anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour to display the HD version uh, to the public. Jeez. What a so pain. it seems to be priority based. Uh, assuming you have, or sorry, based on how many followers you have, where in the pri or where in the queue you get put, I guess. Hmm. So you discovered this problem and annoyed you, and you decided, like most uh, very awesome nerd-based projects, well, I'm going <laughs> to fix it myself then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, right? Yeah, because I mean the the major record companies have no incentive to do something like this. They just want hmm. to get their stuff out there as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And just paying an intern to download. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Something off the web, putting it through what is considered the best AI upscaling tool and re-uploading it is considered acceptable, which Mm. I don't consider it acceptable, but unfortunately I don't run a major label so my opinion doesn't really matter yeah i mean it's it's kind of the same thing right there's a a company in the retro gaming world that's notorious for selling absolute garbage and their their stance on it is if i plug this cable into my super nintendo and plug the other end into my tv will i get a signal yes then done they don't care about anything else they just sell their crappy adapters and pollute the market with it so yeah it's I get it. We all feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, because like the fact is, we can do better, but people just don't want to do better. I guess. Yeah. So, um, you came up with this tool, uh, BravoCon, and uh, I mean, just how did that even get started? Do you have a, a background in software development? Do you have a background working with video processing? Do you work in the broadcast industry? And if you're not allowed to, to tell any of that, that's cool too. But just, well, no, you know, I, I, this is not a small project to, to undertake. It's a very good question. So four years ago when I started the project, I was just a sort of amateur developer. I'd never done any courses, any studying, any jobs at all at that point. Since then, I'm now doing a Bachelor of Computer Science and I work in the tech industry. And it was thanks to the, in fact, it was thanks to my GitHub repos that actually I managed to get the job in the first place because it was the experience that they liked the most, not just the certificate for in IT, which I got, uh, I'd say about two, three years ago. So I'd mostly been just teaching myself and making nerdy projects like this. And it was was four years in the making before I finally decided to release it to the public. I didn't actually change much before the public release. The main issue was licensing because it, uses a whole bunch of different projects with three different licenses in total. And that was the hardest part, I'd say. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, how did you get those licenses or how did you work around that? Well, luckily they were all open source licenses. And I I hope I didn't do anything wrong in the licensing process because it is very difficult when you've got multiple licenses for one project but i have obviously i've credited all the original developers for the incredible tools that they made qt gmc the deinterlacer and ffmpeg which i use to take pretty much any source video in and then output it in any format i want But Bravicon itself is basically a graphical user interface for AVI synth using, uh, as I stated before, QTGMC for deinterlacing. I use NNEDI3 for upscaling. 
which I believe QTGMC also uses behind the scenes for its uh, interpolation. And when you when you combine both of these two, uh, I think they call them effects, even though they're not really effects, in AVI synth, you get really high quality output from interlaced video. And it's suitable for the web because when you upscale it to that degree, I'd personally recommend upscaling it to 4K for YouTube. You get minimal uh, additional compression artifacts from YouTube's own pipeline. Now, um, so essentially the tool that you wrote is um, stitching all of these different things together in a, a very nice and easy to follow uh, GUI but it's not rewriting any of the deinterlacing tools or anything like that, correct? And I, I mean that respectfully. That's not like a shot yeah, or anything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't do anything revolutionary. It just makes it accessible for the average user because AVI synth has a notoriously difficult learning curve and mm. learning how to write your own scripts and also getting all the plugins to work correctly is huge pain. So... My yeah, goal massive. with this was to uh, heavily simplify that process so that anyone could do it, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, that's, um, you know, I'm glad you touched upon that because if uh, I, I definitely want to spend a second talking about that too, because it's, you know, it's very easy if you've never tried to do any kind of scripted video anything to just think like, oh, okay, GUIs are cool, but, you know, what's this really do? But anybody that's ever spent some time with FFmpeg or with AVI synth or really any of these things that you, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's probably a little extreme to say this, but it's almost like learning another programming language because you have to understand what all of the flags do. You have to understand the orders in which you do things. And very often, and you know, I understand why, because they're very powerful tools and they're really built for experts to have full control. But if you just want to do some basic stuff, it's still just as hard as if you were going to do some complicated stuff. So having a GUI that works that, you know, that just flows nicely is actually a really big help to that. So it's, uh, that's, that alone is a good uh, first step, but I see you have a couple of other options in here as well. And um, so, you know, in the video game world, right, we, for any 2d retro graphics, or I guess modern games that are retro styled, we like sharp scaling, integer scaling, um, nearest neighbor, you know, there's a million ways to, to describe the same thing. Uh, but with, with video, with people, not video games, or I guess with certain types of games, there's different types of scaling that you could use to smooth the image out, to, um, to try to fake preserving the resolution as you're scaling it. Do you have those options or is that stuff that you plan on adding to this as well? Different types of scaling? Yeah, that's actually a very good idea. I could pretty easily add nearest neighbor upscaling to the uh, program as an option. I was... I mean, it's obviously designed for video now, but whenever tools like this are released, many different groups of people look at it and go, oh, shit, I could use this for me, and, you know, here's how I could apply this to my workflow. So I imagine you're going to get probably a few people asking you about different types of scalings and different options you could add. Yeah, this morning I woke up to seven brand new feature requests in my inbox. Hmm. I haven't looked at all of them yet, but 
I've seen some that definitely I will have to add. And I think you've touched on a good one there. Allowing you to choose what method of upscaling is definitely something I'll have to add to it. <clears throat> so are you familiar with the different types of upscaling algorithms and how they would apply in different scenarios? Uh, I'd consider myself fairly well-versed on that stuff. Um, I'm one of those people that knows just enough to be dangerous. So um, <laughs> let's uh, let's walk through this then, and maybe you could educate myself and everybody listening as well. But, you know, the, the nearest neighbor one is the easiest. Certain style graphics definitely uh, really um, benefit from that. I've done a mix of nearest neighbor and then other types. So you, you know, you do an integer scale 1x or 2x, and then you do a smooth scale afterwards to the target resolution. Those are the tricks like that are pretty good for video games. But for, for, for video, progressive scan video and interlaced video, both kind of scale differently. Um, and I guess if you've done really good deinterlacing, it might not even matter. But yeah, Do you so, have any thoughts on that and what are the better way to approach those? So what I'm currently doing is I'm using the, so NNADI3, which is the high quality upscaler, can only do, uh, can only enlarge images by powers, powers of two. So in order to s complete the scale, I use, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Langshush. Upscaling. Oh, I, I don't. I have never met anybody that truly knows how to pronounce that. So don't worry. <laughs> Which I think is. I'm not sure it's much different to sync, so I'll just call it sync, I guess. But yeah, so be because the NNEDI two or the Edge something deinterlacer can only do powers of two, I have to use another method to complete the scale to the standard resolutions of, you know, 1920 by 1080, 3840 by 2160 and so on. And I, I compared them all by linear makes it too blurry by cubic makes it too blocky. And I decided on the one I said before, which I'll probably screw up the pronunciation. So I'll, I'll I won't say it again. <laughs> <coughs> Um, so, I mean, is there, you know, is there something that you've done, you know, is there your average workflow that you kind of follow the same types every time you go about doing it? Yeah. So it follows a, basically a set list of instructions based on what parameters you give it and it will, actually, I'll just bring up the code so I can make sure I get everything right. Yeah, so in order, it will first call the ffmpeg source function for loading the input file. Then if deinterlacing is required, it will call qtgmc to deinterlace it. Then if you select that you want noise reduction, it'll use the temporal degrain plugin for AVSynth. Hmm. If you decide that you want to in, uh, convert the frame rate, say you've got a PAL video and you want to output it as NTSC or vice versa, it'll call the convert FPS function, which it's unfortunately not any kind of motion adaptive stuff. It's just frame blending, but it's better than dropping frames or duplicating frames. 
because you don't get that judder. Mm. Then the next step is if you want to crop or stretch the video, it will output that to the script. It supports both crop and stretch, crop before stretch or stretch before stretch before crop, which means that if you want to get rid of letterboxing or if the video is in an incorrect aspect ratio, you can fix both. That's, um, yeah, so that's kind of interesting because crop is something, you know, I, I've ripped a couple of videos before and either my capture methods were bad or the original video was letterboxed, so you have the black bars in the video. I guess it's the best way to explain it for anybody that hasn't really dug into that. You know, you see, you take a four by three video and you play it on your 16 by nine TV, you have the black bars on the left and the right, and that could be because your TV added it or it could be that that's how the file was made. So that's definitely why you would want to crop stuff like that. <clears throat> and I see you have options here for, geez, eight, uh, seven different aspect ratios to crop from. So even movies that are, you know, 235, so the, the really wide screen, you could even chop off the black bars on the top and bottom of that with this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted to make it as basically as customizable as possible so you can have the ideal output for whatever your video source is. Hmm. And then uh, you, the output, um, you have a bunch of different options here, uh, both resolution and frame rate. Um, so uh, and that's where it just uses. Um, so when you say it, it does it by two, if I have a 480p video, um, if I select 4K 3840 by 2160, obviously that's more than double the, the size. So was I misunderstanding when I heard that uh, heard you describe it like that? So what it will do, it will upscale it, I believe, eight times for 480p to 2160p, and then it will downscale it to using the Langshush algorithm to that 4K uh, frame. Then if it's a 4x3 video, it will, if you've selected 16x9, it will add borders automatically. So it will... It won't crop it or whatever. It will add the letterbox to it. But I'm going to add 4x3 4K as well, which I believe YouTube does support. Mm. So that would be 2880 by 2160 if my maths are correct. That is pretty cool. And, um, <clears throat> and then afterwards you could select the codec uh, and the audio codec as well. Um, is there any ones that you suggest, and do you have to have these all pre-installed on your computer for them to work? No, these are all built into FFmpeg, so the only thing you need is to download that repo and, oh, sorry, the release from the repo and the and to have Avisynth Plus installed, which I found out later that that was the issue people were having because a lot of people were saying that they tried to convert a video, but it would just immediately immediately say conversion complete without any sort of error message. And I was figuring out what was going on with that. And it turns out that's just because I had AVSynth Plus already installed on all my computers, which that's <laughs> when, I yeah, when I first, um, I, when I first went through, I was kind of wondering what else was absolutely required for that. So I guess, um, I guess that's basically it is the AVI synth plus and uh, just the one right on their GitHub is the only thing that you need, right? Yeah, just 
uh, the Windows installer will, I think it will automatically figure out if you've got an x64 or x86 computer and install the best version for it. I've just linked directly to the installer in my readme. <coughs> ah, I, I skipped that. I'm sorry. I always do. I almost always do, and I know I shouldn't. Oh, no, don't worry. I only added it uh, 12 hours ago now because that's only when that's when I figured out what the issue was. It was completely my fault because I, I didn't realize that I had AVI Synth installed on all the computers I was testing it on. Well, I uh, I grew up with a, a friend whose father was an engineer, and he used to say shit like, I'm an engineer. I write the instructions. I don't read them. And I, I, I think that rubbed off on me, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, it's absolutely not your fault. Numerous people are having issues with it, which I guess makes sense. It is the version one. There will be, you know, some little things you need to, I'll need to fix. Yeah, of course. I'd so say, um, uh, now, what about the input file? Because um, in the gaming world, you could have basically anything from the pre-HD era. You know, I, I'm looking at a file now that's 320 by 250 at 5994. Uh, is there uh, any kind of limitations to what you could feed it? There shouldn't be. <coughs> I'd say anything you put into it, it should support. Depending on the input file, and I believe there's an issue with MP4s at the moment where it is unable to detect interlaced MP4s, but there is a force interlaced option to work around that. I think that bug... Yep, uh, oh, I see right in the video processing, there's options for force interlaced or force progressive. Yeah, so that basically means, for example, you may have a DVD which has an interlaced stream on it, but is actually a progressive video. If you click force progressive, it won't attempt to deinterlace a, a 25 or 29.97 PSF or pr progressive segmented frame video stored within the interlaced, uh, stored within an interlaced video. Yeah, I guess Force Progressive is good for the video game world as well because anything that's 240p, and yes, I know 240p isn't a real thing, uh, but you know the the blanket term describing older resolutions like that are very often, since they're 15 kilohertz, just assumed that they are 480i interlaced. So that's why you get a lot of um, a lot of processors and stuff that <clears throat> that try to deinterlace something that was not interlaced to begin with. So you get a very weird and annoying flicker. Yeah, that. I think even if you were to put a 240p stored in a 480i frame into QTGMC, I think it is smart enough to recognize that, and it won't it, it won't produce poor output. Although I would highly recommend you select the force progressive option in that case. That makes sense. Um... Actually, I'm just going to do one right now while we're talking just for the hell of it, just to kind of see what happens. So if uh, if this crashes and we have to punch in, that's exactly what happened. But um, a while back, I used FFV1 to do some direct 240p captures. And uh, it was kind of, um, it was an interesting test in that, I, you know, I, I learned a lot. You're able to have 
basically not fully uncompressed, but definitely lossless video at very, very small file sizes, comparatively speaking, because you're, you're in such a low resolution. So I actually think that's pretty awesome for basically anybody <coughs> who wants to archive old game footage and doesn't, you know, that way you could scale it however you want. So that same footage you captured today, which was really hard and you went through a lot of trouble to get the correct captures, you know, 20 years from now, if you want to scale it to 16K, you don't have to worry about whatever footage that you maybe badly scaled 20 years ago. There you go. Here's your, you know, here's crystal clear, perfect representation of what you're talking about. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of cool uh, to have that option, but you know, a lot of things break in the process because they just don't understand what it is that you're you're seeing. Yeah, so lossless video input into the program produces by far the best output. I mean, I've done a lot of tests from DVDs and it does exacerbate the MPEG block artifacts a lot. But when it's uploaded to YouTube, it's basically unnoticeable once YouTube adds its own extra layer of compression on. But yeah, absolutely. If you can... If you have the ability to capture lossless footage, that will absolutely produce the best output, bar none. All right, let me fire this thing off. It says conversion complete. That was very, very quick. Um, well, I'm not sure if it worked. I tried to use ProRes. Let me try... Uh, H264 instead. Oh, and I crashed the program. <laughs> That's my luck. <coughs> my old boss always used to say, if uh, you know, if you, if you want something broken, send it to Bob. So, yeah, sorry. That's all right. There's, I could assure you, you're not the only one having that problem at the moment. Um, do you know? I mean. Do you have a sense of where some of these crashes are coming from? Because that was one of my huge frustrations whenever I was working with FFmpeg or something. <clears throat> when something would not go my way, I never had a clue, what, almost never had a clue what actually went wrong. So it was, you know, it's one of those things that was very frustrating. So for somebody that has a, a more educated background in this, are, are you seeing what's happening and going, oh, okay, I know how to fix this, I know what to do? Or are you... Are you just kind of like, well, I guess I'll have to figure this out as it comes. Well, interestingly enough, if you if you try and input an AVI synth script into FFmpeg without having AVI synth installed, the only error FFmpeg gives is unknown error occurred. That's it. And that basically means install AVI synth. And I had to learn that one the hard way. Oh, I bet. Uh, I'm just kind of looking, uh, trying this one more time to see if I crash it again. So have you... So analyzing, so I think we're good. Have you installed the AVI Synth Plus? I did, yeah. Yeah, looks like it's, uh, looks like it's converting along. So, and according to the task manager, this is um, uh, it's all using the CPU. So it's not using any GPU for compression or anything like that, correct? Yeah, I initially thought that the issue was that the computer may, may require a discrete GPU in order to do the processing, but I later found out that it's not actually true. Hmm. Um, is there, 
a minimum specs that you would recommend for this? Um, you know, obviously the slower the CPU, the longer it's going to take, but is there, you know, you can't run it without 16 gigs of RAM. You can't run it without X or Y. Is there anything in, in this that you really suggest people have before they actually try to use it? I would say minimum required RAM would be eight gigabytes because okay. FF, FFmpeg uses a hell of a lot when it's encoding. But that's basically it. CPU, yeah. The only the only difference would be processing time, I guess, for CPU. If you've got, like, say, an i three, it will probably take two or three times as long as it would on an i seven, for example. I got a an i nine two point five eleventh gen that I have in the PC that we're running on right now, and. CPU spiked to 100%, but uh, no drop-offs in this podcast so far. So it seems to be holding its own, and uh, you know, it's, it's doing fairly well. It's very interesting. I should, I might do some benchmarks on various computers I have, and I'll see how far back I can go. I wonder if I can run it on Windows 7, for example. So I've been jumping around because that's how my scatterbrain works, but uh, basically... What do you think is the the feature about BravoCon that stands out other than the simplicity? That one's kind of a given and too easy. It, do you think it's going to be proper deinterlacing and scaling at the same time? Or is it just really the fact that you now have a, a much easier point and click way to get access to these more complicated tools? Yeah, I think I think that would be the the main pull of BravoCon. Not that it can perform those the high quality deinterlacing because people versed in AVI synth scripting could, you know, access that stuff already. It's just that this enables a much wider audience to be able to use those extremely high quality tools mm. which were previously inaccessible to anyone without a decent amount of technical knowledge. I mean, that in itself is a win, but uh, deinterlacing video is still really tricky. It's tricky using video processors for gaming because uh, you have to do it as fast as possible. Otherwise, you're buffering frames there by creating lag. So in the video game world, deinterlacing is always a giant pain. Uh, but even in the video world, you know, a lot of the stuff that I deal with is how do you watch older content and make it not shitty? Well, the answer is use a CRT or a projector that could do native 480i like a CRT projector. But, you know, good luck finding all that stuff. Good luck finding, calibrating, and setting up a CRT projector. That's not something that's easy. It was never easy. And, you know, even if you are somebody with the space and the desire to have older technology and you're strong enough to lift a 36-inch CRT, it's still not going to be as big as your 65-inch OLED that's going to look better for absolutely everything except older content 480i 480p so and not to mention that we're very quickly not going to be able to use that technology anymore probably 20 more years and we're barely going to be seeing any of that but the content is always going to be there that could that has the potential to last forever so being able to both archive the original exact original refresh refresh rate aspect ratio and resolution but at the same time, also have a way to scale it to whatever you're doing modern and have it look good is important. Yeah, exactly. And that's the other thing. 
I don't want people who process their videos with this tool to just delete the original masters after they're done with it. That's I would highly, highly recommend archiving that as well because the fact is in the future there will probably be better methods than QTGMC for deinterlacing because even QTGMC has its problems. There are occasional warping artifacts, for example, especially on mouths I've noticed. Hmm. It, it, it doesn't handle it perfectly. It handles it a lot better than the alternatives, but it's not perfect. And I think the fact is there'll never be a perfect deinterlacing solution other than to watch your content on a CRT, which scans, you know, the frame, the scan lines alternately. And you know, it would, uh, it would actually be pretty cool if we could find a way to have a, a TV fast enough. So after we wait till refresh rates hit 240 at the minimum, and then have something that could actually draw on a modern display the same way you would have it drawn on the CRT. And even then you still have to stretch that resolution. So it's not, you know, you, you still, even with that would have to deal with something like this. Yeah. And that's another interesting thing because you'd need, in order for persistence of motion to work, you need an incredibly high refresh rate, something that the eye can't discern. Mm. The CRT, of course, scans line by line. You probably won't ever be able to do that with a OLED. It's just won't yeah. really be possible. True. Um, you know, you could probably fake it. One of the things that uh, I've always tested with these fake CRT filters that we use in retro gaming is that it's it's very common to because we, you know, just like you said, you can't actually recreate the entire look of how a CRT works. So it's very common that I'll be up close taking pictures of my flat panel OLED screen, taking pictures of the CRT, tweaking these filters, trying to get it to look perfect and zoomed in a hundred times. You know, you're looking at both and you go, all right, I think I nailed it. And then you go and you step 10 feet or six feet back or whatever, however your normal viewing distance is. And you go, that doesn't really look right. And then you kind of tweak it. So from normal distance, it looks correct. And then you go back and you do the zoomed in picture and you're like, well, that doesn't look right. So it's, it, there's a lot more to it. You know, the way your brain processes the image, um, things that you could never figure out in real time when you start breaking it down, it's pretty rough. Yeah. It's, it's a very, very difficult problem to solve. And <coughs> on an OLED, let's say you ran it at what? 600 Hertz, for example, you'd have to, in order to simulate or at least get close to simulating the way a CRT works, you'd put one tenth of the scan lines, then another tenth, then another tenth, then another tenth. And mm. running it at 600 hertz, that will build a full image one tenth of a, one tenth of the screen at a time. But I don't know if that's fast enough for you know your pers persistence of motion effect to work. I, I don't unfortunately have access to the display that can refresh that quickly so I, I can't confirm either way yeah neither do i unfortunately that would be kind of fun um i'm trying to go through so i just did a 240p video <clears throat> and other than the scaling algorithm you know not nearest neighbor it came out great came out 
you know, it uh, auto detected as progressive. There was no artifacts in it. Didn't take too long. Um, so yeah, that that was pretty cool. I'll try to find. I'm gonna try to look for something that's 480i that I could do as well, especially something that I know is. Um, I know that I recorded. Of course, just because I recorded it, I wonder how I captured it over the years. But I'll figure something out in a second. I'll just grab something so I could uh, something short so I could see an example here or anything like that. <laughs> um, oh, I think I have one. Perfect. And I think it's super short. I was in, uh, believe it or not, I was in a Megadeth video once. I uh, I got invited right place at the right time to uh, to go to this premiere where they were shooting a video and the cameraman walked by and I was like, hey, you might just want to hang around here because I'm going to be the one you want on camera. And they looked at me like, you look like a fucking accountant. What do you mean? You're the one. <laughs> and I, I absolutely was going ape shit the whole time. And one of the cameramen like elbows, the other one, and he was like the fat one, get, get the fat one. And that was it. The only crowd shot in the entire music video was me. So uh, that's, that's what I found. And I cut the clip out. So it's just a 10 second clip. So this should be pretty easy. So it's reading the input file as MPEG two, 720 by 480 at 2997 4 by 3 so that makes the, that makes sense both for how i captured it um and the original of it correct yeah that that all sounds exactly correct and i force interlaced because we know it was an interlaced video um what you know noise reduction is um when are the situations that you would recommend running that so the noise reduction function I wouldn't recommend for digital video because that's minimal noise and QTGMC already does a tiny bit of noise reduction itself. But for analog sources, for example, VHS, Betamax, U-Matic, possibly Beta, Betacam itself. I don't know if Betacam SP has enough noise for it to be required, but some of the lower luma resolution analog formats i would recommend using the noise reduction on this would have been recorded on vhs and then captured i'm pretty sure it might have been ripped from youtube i don't know i'm gonna leave noise reduction on just to see what happens yeah from uh, a vhs source i'm sorry what did you say oh sorry from a vhs source i would recommend using the noise reduction feature okay uh no resizing because it shouldn't need it. Uh, output, you know, much like in your documentation, <clears throat> I'm just following that match the frame rate. Don't try to change anything. Just leave it at 29.97 and just do the scaling for 3840 by 2160, right? So if the video is, uh, do you know if it's 29.97 interlaced or progressive? It would have the original video would have been interlaced, and uh, I don't know how I captured it. It's been many, many years. If if it if it's interlaced and recorded on video, I'd recommend putting fifty nine point nine four as the output. It should be able to. If you do have the interlaced copy and it's not a a ready deinterlaced conversion, otherwise just leave it at twenty nine point nine seven. Okay, and if I'm going to 4K, what's the bit rate that you would recommend for that? Do I try to match the original bit rate, or because I'm going to such a higher resolution, do I need to... Is there like, you know, you're going 10 times higher, so do 10 times the bit rate or something? 
Yeah, so for 4K, I guess it would depend on the codec. If you were going H.264, I'd say maybe 100 megabits per second for a decent output. If you're going H.265, uh, 40 to 50 should be okay. Hmm. All right, let's fire this off and see what happens. Super short video, so this should only take a, a couple of seconds to go. Um, analyzing, converting... I think what's probably taking the longest time is it's on a drive that I have set to um, to spin down when not in use, and it's a mechanical spinning hard drive. Here we go. All right, so it's very, very slow, but that's probably because it's coming off of the slowest drive in my machine. So, um, Could also be the noise reduction itself because it provides a very good quality output, but it is very, very slow. So what is the default that, uh, setting using um qt gmc is it you know slow fast uh you know what what setting preset setting are you using in this one so i'm just using the what qt gmc itself sets as the default which is slow but i'm going to be adding a advanced checkbox which will let you uh choose some of the qt gmc parameters right so it says right on their website the default preset is slower. Don't be obsessed with using the slowest settings. The differences can be very small for a huge increase in time. In particular, HD material benefits less from extreme settings. HD is six to eight times as slow as SD. So if you're, you know, if you have 1080i versus 480i, yeah, that makes sense. I wouldn't go to very slow for that, but yeah, 1080i. You know, even with home videos, you're not. You know, no disrespect to you or any of these softwares, but you're not going to take a home video that was shot on VHS in the 80s and suddenly make it a beautiful 4K 60 image. It's just, it's not happening. Yeah. And you could obviously imp make it much better and certainly look better on your TV, but, you know, you're not, no miracle is happening here. It's not going to. Yeah. That's just the unfortunate truth of old analog video. You can't just extract details that aren't there, unfortunately. Even if certain tools attempt to, they usually don't. They look a bit crap, let's be honest. <laughs> have you seen some of the AI upscaling things that have been done over the year or, or the past couple of years, like the Topaz and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm very unimpressed by that. I'll be completely honest with you. Because it, it, it sort of adds this uncanny valley look to the image which i do not like yeah i actually agree oh wow uh yeah, <laughs> yeah so this is exactly what i was hoping for it's um here's the best way i could describe this uh if you're watching a, you know a 480i image on like a like a lower resolution flat panel, right? So you have a 720p native screen and, you know, it's taking up, uh, you know, it's taking up the middle of the screen and it looks good. And then you stretch it to full screen and it doesn't really look as good. But then that same file on a 4K monitor, same thing. But now there's this tiny little image that you're watching when you're watching it at original. And when you stretch it, it's way worse. This is kind of like watching that same interlaced video in your small little window, but it's bigger. 
So it's not magic. It's not HD. It's just when you zoom into it, it doesn't feel all weird it, uh, and stretched. It just looks like you're able to zoom in better. Sorry yeah. if that's the worst analogy ever, but that's, um, you know, I'm just trying to paint the picture. It's better than what I could do. I mean, I'm, I'm not good with words <laughs> as a general rule, so you're doing fine. <laughs> well, I'm not that great with them either, and it's what I do for a living, so uh, joke's on me, I guess. But yeah, this is <laughs> this is very, very cool. And, you know, once again, right, if if no one, if someone listening has never tried to do any of this before, you know, I'm sure they're still going to be you know, kind of nodding, going, oh, cool, I'd like to try that. But anybody that's taken the time to try to use these scripting tools to do what I just did in real time talking with you on this podcast, uh, you know, it's it's impressive how quickly I got that result. Yeah. And no disrespect to the AVI synth developers, but it is a nightmare to use, an absolute nightmare. Like, even yeah. when I first used it, it took me several weeks before I had a functioning script that I was able to produce any sort of output file from. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that. So, um, you know, where where are you taking this from here? You know, you obviously have the software that's working great as long as you remember to install, uh, you know, AVI Synth and um, AVI Synth Plus, sorry. It, you talked about adding a couple other scaling options, but are there anything else that you're thinking about for this um, are there any, you know, any other problems that you've run into that you'd like to solve using this software? Well, an ultimate goal would be to add a real-time feature in which it will take a capture device, run it through this, run it through the pipeline in real time, and then output it as a virtual webcam that you can feed into OBS or similar software. That's hmm. a. It's very ambitious, but maybe one day yeah that makes sense that would be kind of cool and uh certainly make <coughs> sorry i'm still just coughing my brains out yeah it would certainly make things a lot easier um you know <coughs> uh how about you know people that want to capture 480i i know this is off topic to the the work that you know we're, we're discussing but is there a method that you would recommend that kind of has a better way of getting this 480i uh, image because a lot of capture cards won't even support 480i input. If you're using VCRs, you have to use time-based correctors or have a VCR with one in it. I mean, there's there's a lot of hardware stuff that uh, I can handle. I'll take care of that in an upcoming video. I'm sure I'll try to make one before the end of the year. But from a software point of view, that's where it has always gotten tricky. And a lot of people record in OBS and then they use post-processing to kind of, you know, get the file that they should have gotten to begin with. But I have trust issues when it comes to my nerd equipment. So do you have any suggestions for that? I would personally recommend virtual dub because it okay. can take a raw feed from a capture card and output a either an uncompressed or a losslessly compressed AVI file. The issue there is I think there are, some audio problems sometimes especially with the dazzle series of cards you can't seem to record the audio and the video at the same time without messing with the capture pin and a whole bunch of stuff there's a driver issue with that yeah so the the hardware stuff like that that's kind of what i'm good at 
um, you know, not to sound like an asshole, but, you know, figuring out what, which capture cards are going to work with these resolutions, figuring out what you need to do on each computer, um, partially from my just brute force testing, but also because I have friends that are way smarter than I am that are very patient in helping with this. Um, so that part of it, I could certainly handle putting together. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be like my last video capture uh, section, which was like a 45 minute video that still barely scratched the surface for people that want to do direct capture. But the the hardware side I got, but virtual dub, I don't think I've ever tried to use for capture ever, which is weird because it's a tool I've been using since I, I remember it being released. Wait, no, virtual dub, not VLC. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why I just confused the two in my head. I've been up for a very long time today. So you meant virtual dub, correct? Yes. Sorry. I, I apologize to you, everybody listening. It's uh it's late. I'm trying to I try to always schedule these in the morning or during the day so I'm nice and sharp, but because of our very large time difference, I just wanted to get it done and uh, make it work because I was excited to talk to you about this stuff, but I'm uh, I'm obviously running on empty here. So, okay. So virtual dub is software that I have some experience with and it um, capturing in 480i is one of the things that I've always kind of had trouble with. So do you have any, any tips, uh, any, you know, is there a guide out there that you've used that might be able to help? I might have to write one actually. I've sort of figured it out myself based on poking through the menus for a while. Yeah, that would be incredibly helpful just to uh, j just for myself and everybody else who's looking to do this, because it's, you know, one of the things that I run into all the time is people stumble across the site and you know the YouTube channel because of stuff that isn't directly related to video games. So, you know, this is the perfect example. Somebody stumbles across my video capture video and they go to the website and they say, all right, this is all cool. Um, I'm definitely going to do this with video games, but I have these five VHS tapes from a, a loved one that has passed away. How could I guarantee that I archive this in the best way possible? And that's kind of those moments where you're just like, you know, I, I kind of, I, I, that weighs heavily on me, I guess is the best way to say it. And, you know, the best way to do it now is a, a program or a, a hardware and software combination called the doomsday duplicator. I'm not sure if you're aware of that project, but that's that's pretty amazing, but that's expensive, a lot of equipment, complicated. Um, so what's step two, right? Getting a, a capture card that can do 480i that doesn't suck, doesn't have to be a super expensive, fancy one. It just doesn't, you know, not one of the $20 ones off yeah. of AliExpress or do the $8 use, ones or whatever. Do not use an easy cap ever. Right. That produces <laughs> dreadful output. Yeah, exactly. So, you know... Uh, you know, is that how you do it or, you know, or, or from that point on, then the software part is really where it, it just always gets tricky. And I just never know whether to tell people try to go down the road of doing 480i capture, you know, non nerds. I mean, do I tell them to go down that road and then scale it? Or do I tell them to try to find a video processor that could do it? Um, like, genuinely, my favorite solution at the moment is using a Panasonic DVD recorder because that has time-based correction built in. Mm -hmm. So if you wire a VCR directly into a Panasonic DVD recorder and record it in, I forget what the highest quality mode is, but it's 9 megabits per second MPEG-2 with a PCM audio. And because of its built-in TBC, the output is perfectly stable 
and it's at the correct DVD resolution as well. So I've always, I have always uh, hesitated for that because the DVD VCR combos are the ones that so many people have used over the years. And so many of them were garbage. The DVD recorder combos, I mean. So, you know, you pop your tape in, oh, yeah. you hit record on the DVD. Those are not and, good. Yeah. So what you're saying is using a separate DVD recorder and then a separate good quality VHS yeah. player. In in my case, I've got a, I believe it's a Sony six head VCR piped oh. into a Panasonic. I think it's a Blu-ray recorder, but it, it records to an internal hard drive. And then over DLNA, over the network, I can actually pull the recorded file directly. So I don't need to burn it to a DVD first. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, do you happen to know the model number just for people who are watching or listening or whatever and, and want to grab one of those right away? Uh, <laughs> just doing a, a quick search. There's a bunch that comes up from Japan. Uh, ah. Mine is the DMR BWT seven six zero GN. So it it records from TV or uh, composite input from the back. So uh, David Michael Robert dash, uh, and then it was BTW seven sixty GN. Yeah, DMR dash BWT seven six zero GN. I reversed two of those letters. Okay, let me search for that again. Nothing comes up. Just a bunch of remotes for it. <laughs> uh, maybe it's exclusive to Australia. I'll have to... I'll put the link in chat. There are a few... So the Panasonic Digi is the series. D-I-G-A, D-M-R, B-W-T. There's the 620, the 2100. Um, but they all kind of look identical to that. They Basically. all They're the Blu-ray DVD recorder with a hard drive built in. Yeah, as long as it has a composite input on the back and a built-in hard drive, then that should be good to go. So the inputs on this appear to be uh, composite. This one's from Japan. Um, yeah, and that's it. No no S-video input. Um, do any of these offer S-video in? Unfortunately, none of them, and none of them offer component either, which would be nice. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, for archiving tapes, I guess. And I do realize, so um, do you know much about VHS, VCRs, and how the signals were encoded and how, you know, in, in average scenarios like that? Was that an, ever a rabbit hole that you went down? I'd say I have a very base understanding of how that works. So the, the base understanding that I have, even though I've been doing this for so long, uh, is that the vhs tapes that were bought from the factory so the movies that you buy are encoded basically in s video with the color separate however your average home videos were essentially recorded in what what could be called composite video it's probably a little different if you broke it down so um while i'm oversimplifying experts are definitely rolling their eyes at me right now the reason i worded it that way is because if your goal is to capture home videos using composite video should be completely and totally fine. And if your goal <coughs> is to archive footage that was, you know, official made from studios, but was only ever on VHS, like extras or, or weird things, then going the extra distance to S video could get you 
a little bit sharper of an image with one uh with one only exception to that if you find a vhs player with a really good three um, uh, three comb filter or any other kind of filtering technology in it you might benefit from s video just because composites taken right off of the tape onto there and in in the context of home videos does that match up to your research or did i just get something way wrong on that i'm not entirely sure but my understanding was that only svhs would produce a better signal via s video not standard vhs but i could be wrong about that i'm not entirely sure that was always my assumption as well until I really started digging into the format. And, um, you know, <clears throat> I got into this really for home videos and for, for trading concert bootlegs a million years ago when I was a kid, you know, long before YouTube. And so in that era, just all you needed was composite video. You're not gaining anything unless you just happen to really have to have a really good VHS player that, with a good filter built in that your capture card might not. Um, but it, it, people down the road, or as time has gone on, people did kind of go down that discussion with me of, you know, how tapes were made from the factories, the formats that were made. And I, I never really followed up selfishly just because it didn't really apply to any of the stuff I was doing. You know, a movie that has already been rescanned from film and re-released in 4K and HDR, I don't really care about scanning the VHS tape up, so... Yeah, exactly. I it def, it highly depends on the source content. Cuz if if it's on video as in uh say it was recorded on a Betacam tape and then dubbed to video, that would be worth uh preserving in its interlaced form because you get once processed correctly double the frame rate. Mm. Whereas with film, it's 24 or 23.976 frames per second using 3.2 pull down to get it to 29.97p. Or... Hmm. Funny, there are some Panasonic DVD recorders that have S-Video input, but I don't know if they're the ones with the hard drives. They might just go directly onto DVD. Um, but they're exactly what you uh, described. They are a single device, not one of those double, you know, two in ones. Uh, f- funny, a bunch of them are DVD RAM. Uh, very often forget that that was a thing. I, I lived through that; it sucked, and uh, it's kind of funny to to now have to see that again and go, "Oh, that's right. I, I don't want to deal with DVD RAM. I want dash R or plus R." Yeah, DVD RAM. So, my parents, when I was a baby decided instead of getting a mini DV camcorder to get a DVD RAM camcorder. It was a Hitachi something rather. And it was the most, the shittiest piece of technology ever <laughs> produced. Apparently it broke down about half a dozen times and needed to be sent back to the factory. It would stop reading discs all of a sudden. It would just suddenly cut out mid-recording. DVD RAM was not a good format, especially in handheld camcorders. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I lived through all that. I'm you know 40s early, 42 going to be 42 next month. I I lost, I stopped caring once I once I got close to 40 to be honest with you. And I I lived through all of that, and it uh, 
it was ridiculous and annoying and helped nobody. So. Yeah, I, I just, I don't understand why that was ever a thing, to be honest. Yeah, completely agree on that. So I guess uh, what we talked about, the model number, Panasonic Digit, D-I-G-A, I believe that's what uh, what you're looking for. Does it also have like a, a digital video connector on that as well? Uh, my one doesn't, but I know that some of the earlier models had Firewire DV connectors as well, I believe. Yeah, so I think that's probably what people are going to want. But unfortunately, when you search for it, a lot of the really junky ones come up too. So it's uh, it's going to be hard for people to figure that out. I, I guess maybe um, one of the... I guess maybe something to search for is Panasonic DVD hard drive and then try to go through those because that's probably going to be the better... Uh, exactly what you talked about, about how you're able to just go right onto the hard drive and not even bother burning it to disk anymore. Yeah, but you'd need one, need one suitably modern that exposes the recordings over uh, DLNA. And then you can just go invite uh, VLC, go to universal plug and play, and the device is listed. And if you double click it, you can access everything on the hard drive. And also watch live TV if you've got an antenna plugged into it as well. <laughs> oh, it's funny how that works. Yeah, so you you want one with a LAN jack in it as well, I guess. Yeah, LAN or so Wi-Fi. A hard drive and a LAN. Or, you know, a, a network, an Ethernet port. Sorry. Yeah, I, I'd, yeah, I'd highly recommend getting one with an Ethernet port. You can you can transfer it over Wi-Fi, but it's ridiculously slow for some reason. They don't use the highest quality Wi-Fi chip in there. Or or if they did, it's still 15-year-old Wi-Fi versus what we use now. So still going to be kind of junk, comparatively speaking. Yeah, it's limited to about 3 megabytes per second. So uh, 24 megabits per second. <laughs> Interesting. You know, these ones that I'm looking up seem to be um, mostly japan so that, that must have been uh you know that must have been something that didn't really hit in the u.s that much yeah it's interesting because you can still get them in stores in australia today wow really yeah you can get i've got a in my main entertainment unit setup i have a two terabyte 4k blu-ray player with recorder as well but the one with my vcr is the older model which you can actually also still buy for 300 bucks Australian, which I think is around 200 US. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's about what they seem to be going for on eBay, just, uh, you know, after shipping just under 200 bucks. So that is kind of interesting, but that's a cool tip. I'd, I'd never had anybody recommend that before. So that's, uh, you know, for anybody listening, I, I guess I may have just lost half the people listening like they're just going to go through ebay listings and talk about stuff but for anybody that's done this i've never even heard of that as an option before so that that is really cool to even think about um i guess you know some people might just want to deal with ripping it to dvd and then or are recording to dvd and then re-ripping it that might actually be easier depending on what people are used to but i just wouldn't even know which one to recommend that isn't junk quality it's interesting i think if I had to guess why it sort of never penetrated the US market the same way it did the European and Australian markets is because 
free-to-air TV is a much bigger thing here, whereas in the US, I believe, most people just have cable or satellite television. So you can't. Oh, I mean, even recently they just got rid of that. <laughs> but yeah, for for years it was uh, it was that, and not many people dealt with any of the over the air stuff once HD came out. You're you're totally right about that. Yeah. Whereas in Australia we still get quite remarkable viewing figures on some free to air programs, and people still, for example, there was a a popular comedy show where they. So the viewing figures were around half a million and then the DVR viewing figures were 400,000. So there are <laughs> a hell of a lot of people still using their DVRs to record TV, mainly because our internet sucks over here. So on-demand services, while they do exist, some of them are so low bit rate, like one megabit per second whereas the over-the-air broadcast was around 8 megabits per second in 1080i, which looks a lot better than 720p at 1 megabit per second. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So uh, it looks like if people want to go down that route, they're going to have to probably pick one up from Japan uh, or, or Australia, actually. But uh, yeah, it's, that is interesting. But that that's something to consider. I should add that to my pile of stuff that I should try out at some point. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> so uh i guess i should wind it down before i bore people to death with my ebay listings anymore but this is uh you know once again thank you for your work this is very cool this is going to make a lot of people's lives easier um, I, I, I might hope it you know, does yeah i might bug you uh you know the, uh, as time goes on for uh tips or for you know as you update your stuff maybe um you know i could keep in touch and try to put the guides together for what I do on retro RGB for video game stuff and also point back to your guides for any video. So that way people that want to use this to, to scale video games could do so with confidence, knowing that, you know, we're both kind of hitting it, but I just, I still am sticking to my guns in that if you have the ability to record video games in their original resolution, whether it's digital or analog, however you're doing it, I just think that is, better for the long run both for your storage space and because you'd then be able to just scale it any way that you'd like so i think that people who do archival work and you know historians you know ones that ones that actually care about presenting the correct image i think we'll we'll kind of have a good time with this um one thing you know that might actually be a, a pretty cool thing to add far in the future when you're bored and have lots of extra time is uh um resizing for aspect ratios for video game consoles because uh, the pixel count of older video game consoles were all to be drawn on CRTs. So if you're playing them in a one-to-one -one native pixel ratio, they're very often too narrow or too wide. And a lot of people who capture that capture it one-to-one, -one, which is kind of how you should do it. But as you scale it, you need to present a proper four by three aspect ratio. So if uh, maybe if uh, we sent you a long list of all of the different consoles and the, the different resolutions, you might even be able to add a drop down for that. Absolutely. But low priority compared to your work, of course. Low, no, but that would, low compared to video. That would be very helpful. I'd very much appreciate that if you could do that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'll definitely be bugging you as time goes on because this is, uh, you know, part my job, I consider one of the biggest parts of my job to be highlighting all of the amazing stuff that I find out there. But another part of it is also recognizing what path that's going down. And while 
as is. I think your software is awesome. Obviously, that's why I wanted to talk to you. I could see a year from now this being the tool people use to scale retro because it just it makes it it skips so many steps and it skips the the need to learn so much that if you're not doing this all the time, you don't need all of that knowledge. So as somebody that loves to learn, you know, that's a bold statement for me to say, right? If you need to scale 20 videos, you don't need two years worth of research jammed into your brain. You just need to point and click on some stuff and then never worried about again for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I'd say the next, next feature I'd add to Bravacon would be number one, batch processing, and number two, just being able to drag and drop a video onto the window rather than having to manually select it because it's kind of annoying. Batching a folder or batching multiple would certainly be helpful, um, especially if they were all exactly the same. Actually, you'd probably only be able to do that if they were exactly the same. Drag and drop is always handy, but that's, you know, I still have programs that I use that require you to manually click on anything. You can't even just like copy and paste the full path name in there. So while that's certainly handy, I think, uh, you know, that that's one of those creature comforts that's cool, but not necessary. Yeah. Other things I'm adding, number one, an audio delay, both negative and positive. So if the audio and video are desynced, you'll be able to fix that with a a simple, just a text box, how many milliseconds you want to either put it behind or forward. Ooh, so, okay. Uh, then you, is it possible to, to only render certain parts of the video? Because if you have a video that's 20 minutes long and you know, it's going to take a half hour, 40 minutes, two hours, whatever, depending on your computer to scale it, how would you know, you know, you, how would you be able to tweak that? So being able to spit out the first 20 seconds so that you could line, <coughs> line up video might actually be a help. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. That's a very good idea. So a pre sort of preview function, and maybe also a clipping function if you only want to render, or if you only need a clip from a long video anyway. You know, that's something that has always annoyed me to death. Is I I don't know if people realize how hard it is to find a program that just lets you cut a video, and even stuff like Virtual Dub. You know, if you you need to line up and get your codecs to match. It won't just auto detect what's what it's already in and then just say, okay, this is the features of it. If you just want a one-to-one -one cut of this, I'll do it for you. You have to manually select. Or if there's an auto mode, I was never smart enough to figure out how to do that. So even just a basic cut program, uh, I, XSplit, the, uh, the streaming company, offered one a while back and then they just gave up on it and they said, download DaVinci Resolve, that's better anyway. No, it's not. I mean, yeah, yes, it is in every way, except for people that just say, hey, I have a video, but I, you know, I got my drunk uncle flipping the bird at the beginning of it. Can I just cut that out? And, you know, somebody's rambling at the end. So let me cut that off here. Let me just get this great 10 minute segment. Why do I need to learn all of this extra software? Why do I have to worry about the cheap stuff just recompressing it? Why can't I just take a file and cut off the top and cut off the end? Am I missing something there? Is that just my own ignorance as to why there something like that doesn't exist? Is that a way harder thing that I'm thinking of? It's, I'd say it's it's the keyframe compression of modern videos is the main issue because you can only really cut at keyframes. 
you can't cut well at least from the start of a video you have to cut at a keyframe you can't cut in an intermediary intermediary frame because it requires that keyframe information to build the rest of the uh, subsequent frames but if you want to cut from the end of the video you can cut at an intermediary frame without recompressing it of course that problem doesn't exist if you're converting it to a new format because it can just uh, recompress from that point onwards but AVI DMUX is a very good tool that you can use to cut at keyframes without reconverting the video. I will leave a link to that as well. AVIDMUX.org. Oh, wait, so, no, that is, uh, no, this, uh, that's the placeholder. The SourceForge, I guess, is where it's uh, mostly updated. Ah, all right. I, I've used this one before, but it very often doesn't work on me and uh, work for me and i think that's because i have a wide variety of who even knows where i got these files from type of thing you know mostly mine by the way but meaning like who knows how i recorded them how i cut them how i edited them previously so i'll give that another shot yeah and there's a in the tool set at the bottom there are various icons and one of them is go to previous keyframe and go to next keyframe and if you use that that shows you which points you can cut the video on without having to reconvert it. Oh, all right. Well, thank you very much. You just uh, possibly solved that issue for me. So, well, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> so, sorry to be selfish about this in the middle of a podcast, but yeah, I'm no, sure somebody else fine. is going to need that tip. I'll have so. to write some guides because I just, I realize I have knowledge of random things that would be very useful to some people. Yeah, if you know, if you have a place that you already know where to put these guides, let me know. I will happily promote them on retrorgb.com. If you don't have a place to put them, you're welcome to put them up here or up on the console mods wiki or something cuz these are just small things that people run into every day, all day. And m most people either just ask a friend to deal with it or forget about it or end up learning something you know, they're into video editing anyway, so they'll get Final Cut or Premiere or whatever, or DaVinci Resolve, and they'll just end up doing it that way. But I wonder how many people who aren't into this stuff realize that they're actually recompressing and re-encoding as they're working with a lot of these softwares. So I think any of these, uh, any of those guides that you could be willing to do, I think would, would be really, it'd be one of those things where it's like, if you tracked the analytics of it, it would be a steady upward curve you know i don't think anybody you know you're never going to get a, a gazillion hits on something like that but as the years go on it'll be where everybody goes to get this info type of thing yeah i think brovicon will follow sort of the same path mm. it'll be a sort of slow increase as more and more people discover it and find it useful will hopefully find it useful yeah well, I mean, you know, if, uh, if people could sit through my, my rambling in this, uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to start using it after hearing you talk about it because this really does, it's just going to make things so much easier. So I guess, uh, I guess I'll just stop rambling now. Thank you one more time. Uh, and I will be following up with you at the future, uh, in, in the future about all of this stuff. And I will let people know as well how I made out with a couple of old home videos that I have just fed into this thing that I will... Uh, I'll see how it comes out and see how it looks going from 480i to 4K. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let me know. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you very much for having me.